The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Luke 1, 67 through 79. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Citizens Church. Excited to get to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Cole. I'm on the lead team here. And today we're going to be continuing our series, Advent Songs of Christmas. And like Tim talked about this week, our goal for this series is for you to have a fuller joy and understanding of Christmas in this Advent season. That on Christmas morning, the best thing about Christmas is not the gifts or the presents or the food or whatever it is, but that Jesus is our Savior, that He is King, that He is our sacrificial Lamb. And so last week, Tim focused on the Song of Mary and how the kingdom of God is an up down, upside down kingdom, that God uses the lowly for His glory. And what we see in the first two chapters of Luke is that there are actually four songs. Last week, we talked about the song of Mary. Today, we're going to be talking about the song of Zachariah. And then the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about the song of angels and the Simeon's song. And this idea of singing is not unique or new to the Bible or the New Testament. Songs of adoration and praise are found all throughout the Bible. So there's literally a book of songs, Psalms, which is 150 songs that people of Israel would sing corporately. Hannah, which is a character in 1 Samuel, prays to God and sings a song to God about her barrenness asking for a son. When God parted the Red Seas, the Israelites sang songs of joy and adoration as they walked through the parted sea. Even in Revelation, it says that we will sing a song of salvation. So this idea of songs is all throughout the Bible. But here in Luke 1, the Israelites aren't in a place where they want to sing or they want to talk about the adoration of God. That's not their main focus. So at the end of the Old Testament, in a book of Malachi, there's a prophecy about the coming Messiah that says, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in its wings. And then nothing. For over 400 years, God has been silent. 
no miracles, no prophecies. God is not doing anything. And this is a big deal for the Jews because what makes the Jews important, what makes them different from the nations around them is they worship a living God, a living God that communicates to them through prophets and through miracles and through his presence. And so the people of Israel are simply waiting and confused. They are starting to lose hope. And that's where we find ourselves in Luke 1. And today we're going to be focusing on the story or the song of Zechariah, which in many ways mirrors the feelings of the Israelites. So Zechariah is a priest. So he is responsible or he understands this uh, lack of communion between God and the Israelites, but he also is responsible for helping the Israelites commune with God. And so he understands this hopelessness that they're feeling. And in his own life, Zachariah and Elizabeth have been trying to have a kid for the majority of their lives. So according to many theologians, they're probably in their 80s. So for decades and decades, Zachariah and Elizabeth are trying to have a kid. And in Jewish culture, you have to understand that having a child is everything. So from a utilitarian point of view, there was no uh, social security or way to take care of yourself when you were old. Your children, your sons specifically, were supposed to do that for you. But it wasn't just a utilitarian thing. Jewish culture is very honor-oriented. And so kids were what would carry on your legacy. They would continue your line. And so Zachariah and Elizabeth desperately want to have children. For years, they've been asking God to give them a child, and they, like the Israelites, have heard nothing. And in this culture, not having a child would be seen as the wrath of God or the disfavor of God towards you. And so Zachariah and Elizabeth think they have done something wrong. People around them think they have done something wrong. For some reason, God will not give them a child. They must have failed God. They most certainly have failed their families. And do you know that feeling? That feeling of wanting something for so long, pleading with God, asking him to show up, asking him to move in your life, but you just get silence. You hear nothing, nothing happens. There is no response. Maybe you're even asking for good things, like for someone you know to become a believer, for God to remove an addiction or a struggle out of your life, and you feel like you're being faithful and doing the things you're supposed to do, but nothing changes, nothing happens. And C.S. Lewis in his book, A Grief Observed, I think really talks about this feeling really well. So let's go to the quote here. But go to him, talking about God, when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as through as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? This is where Zechariah and Elizabeth are in Luke 1. This is where the Israelites are in Luke 1. And then God speaks to them. 
he breaks the silence. He sends his servant Gabriel, an angel, to tell Zechariah he's going to have a son. He's going to have a son named John, and he's going to be a prophet. He's going to be the person that makes way for the coming Messiah. I mean, can you imagine the beautiful and amazing news? But Zechariah doubts the angel. He says there's no way that him and his wife could ever have a kid. Does he know how old they are? Does he understand what he's even saying? So Gabriel responds by making Zechariah mute until the birth of his son as a discipline or as a punishment for doubting the power of God. And at first glance at this story, I think our response can be, are you, are you serious? Both to Zechariah and the angel. So with Zechariah, you say, are you seriously questioning an angel? Like this guy came up wings and he's telling you a prophecy and you're saying, no, there's no way that's happening. What are you doing? But you have to understand that Zechariah and Elizabeth have spent decades praying for a child. How many times do you think Zechariah thought they were pregnant? How many times did you think they, oh my gosh, finally God has answered our prayer just to realize that no, he hasn't. They still aren't going to have a kid. See, Zachariah can't believe the angel yet because Zachariah is afraid to hope. And then we look at the angel and you go, really? You're going to take away this guy's voice just because he had a moment of doubt? But this seeming curse is in fact a blessing. Because while Zachariah is mute, while he cannot speak, his hope in God is restored. And when the baby is born, Zechariah actually responds in obedience. He, he writes on a tablet that this baby's name will be John. And then in that obedience, God restores his voice. And then with his voice restored, with restored hope, Zechariah begins a song. And so that's what we're going to look, look at today. And what he's doing in this song is he's drawing a connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament, talking about the child that would be Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of the promises that have been made to David, to Abraham, and to the prophets. And as John, John the Baptist, would later prophesy, Jesus would become the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And this is good news for us today because Jesus has fulfilled the promises of God. And Zechariah is going to show us this and build the bridge from the Old Testament to the New. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 1, verses 67 through 80. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit from on high, to give light to those who sit in the darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness 
until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So did you notice a theme in verses in these verses in the song of Zechariah? So in verses 70 to 74, Zechariah mentions God's promises four different times. And so what Zechariah is doing is he is pointing to an understanding of the Old Testament. Zechariah is a priest, and so it's actually his job to help Jews walk in communion with God. And what he's doing is he's showing how the Old Testament points to these promises and show how Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. And so God interacts with his people, the way that God interacts with his people is different than how people would interact with each other in regards to promises. So when people interact with each other, they tend to interact in what we would call contracts, or we use contract language. And so contract language is the idea of that if I do something and you do something, then we will both continue to do it. But it is contingent on us both keeping our part. So an example is if I buy a house, I will make the payments as long as you provide the house. But if I stop making the payments, I lose the house. And if you stop uh, providing me a house, I'll stop making the payments. That's contract language. But God, God works in something we would call covenants. And so covenants is a little bit different. There are still obligations, but God remains faithful despite his people's unfaithfulness. So in the house example, if it's a covenant, When I stop making the payments, instead of God taking away the house, he actually starts making the payments for me, right? See the difference? So throughout history, God has been making covenant promises with his people. It started all the way back in Genesis. So after Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled against God. And God promised that he would send a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, who would defeat death, who would defeat sin. And that's the first covenant that God makes with his people. And Zechariah points back to these covenants that God has made, and specifically three covenants in the Old Testament to show that Jesus will be the fulfillment of these covenants. So he points back to the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the new covenant. These are not exhaustive. There are other covenants in the Old Testament, but these are the ones that Zechariah focuses in on for this text. Just a quick disclaimer. So for the rest of this sermon, I'm going to use covenant and promise interchangeably, but I'm always referring to covenant thought process. So I'm never talking about a contract. I'm always talking about a covenant, even when I'm using the word promise. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through this song and explain how Jesus is the fulfillment of these covenants and how it's good news for us today. So let's go back to verse 67 through 68. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So Zechariah is telling us that God has come to take care of his people and to set them free. This is where the people of Israel are waiting for. They want a Messiah to come and to liberate them from Rome. They want redemption. They want God's silence to be broken. They want their hope to be restored. And the birth of Zechariah's son is the first step. The Messiah is coming coming, and Zechariah's son, John, will be the person that sets the way, that he will make the path for the Messiah to come. So let's keep reading, verses 69 through 71. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. The first promise that Zacharias shows us is that Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the king of kings. About a thousand years before Zechariah's song, there was a time where the Israelites were ruled by a king. And one of the greatest kings, in some ways the first true king, even though he was the second king of the Israelites, there was a man named David. And in 1 Samuel 7, God uses this prophet named Nathan to make a promise with David, to tell him what he is going to do and make a covenant with David. This is referred to as the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant promises that the Messiah will come through the line of David and the Messiah will establish his kingdom forever. So the Davidic covenant, the Messiah will come from the line of David and the Messiah will establish a kingdom that will rule forever. God has sent us a savior and a Messiah and that savior will fulfill the Davidic covenant. He will come through the line of David. He will destroy our enemies. He will save us from bondage, the sin of death. And we know that Jesus has done this. He comes from the line of David. He has established his kingdom forever. And this is good news. He has defeated sin and death. So we can put our hope in him. We can put our hope in the all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign king, Jesus. And this is confirmed to us in Luke 1, verses 30 through 33. Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, you will behold, you will have a son and he will be called the son of the most high. And his, he will come from the line of David and he will establish his kingdom forever. Zechariah is telling us Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That this child, the child that Mary will give birth to, Jesus is the king of kings. The second promise that Zechariah shows us is that Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. Looking at verse 72 to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zachariah says the oath that he swore to Abraham. What he is referencing is the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12, God talks to this man named Abraham, and Abraham's just a normal guy. He is from a place called Ur, which is modern Iraq. He's a shepherd. He has a wife who can't have a kid, much like Zachariah and Elizabeth. But there's nothing particularly extraordinary about Abraham. But God makes a covenant with him, a holy promise, according to verse 72, where he tells Abraham, if you leave your country, and you follow me, I will make you a great nation, both in people and in land. I will bless you and your descendants, and you and your descendants will be a blessing to all the earth. So these are the three components of the Abrahamic covenant. But then in Genesis 22, a fourth component is added to that covenant. So in Genesis 22, what happens is Abraham and Sarah finally have a son. They have a son named Isaac, and he is the chosen son. He is the son that will be the source of Abraham's nations. Through Isaac, they will have children. They will be a great nation. They will be a blessing to the earth. 
But God tells Abraham that he needs to slay his son to show that he actually trusts in God and not in Isaac. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? Abraham and Sarah have wanted a child for years, and finally they have a son, the promised son. And now God wants to take it away? But Abraham listens. He, he takes Isaac to the top of a mountain and is going to kill him like God has commanded him to do. And then in that moment, God sends Gabriel. Gabriel's getting a lot of press today. I'm just saying. But God sends Gabriel and he says, stop. Don't kill Isaac. You have, you have followed God. You have, through your faithfulness, you have shown that you will follow God and trust in him. And Gabriel gives them a ram. He shows them that a ram can be a substitution for Isaac, that he doesn't need to kill his son, that God has provided another sacrifice. And we now can look back at this story and realize that God is showing Abraham or God is showing us that Abraham doesn't have to kill his son because God is going to kill his. That God is going to pay the price that all of us would say, what are you doing when he asked it of Abraham? That God says, I will pay that price. I will give Jesus as a sacrifice. I will do the thing that no one else can do so that you can have a relationship with me. Jesus didn't just come to be our king. He is also our sacrifice, our substitution. And in God's great mercy and kindness, just like with Abraham in Genesis 22, he sends one that can take our place. He sends one who can do the thing that we can never do, to live a perfect life so that we can be in communion with God. Zacharias says Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the king of kings. He is the true sovereign. He also says Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant covenant. This child will be our spotless lamb. He is our final sacrifice. The third promise that Zachariah shows us is that Jesus is the forgiver of sins. Jesus is the forgiver of sins. This is shown to us in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. So Zechariah is pointing to a third and final covenant in this passage, the new covenant, which we can find in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. So in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So this covenant is different than the others. The Davidic and the Abrahamic covenant were primarily external in nature. Jesus would establish a kingdom. Jesus would be the king. He would be our substitution. But the new covenant is talking about inward transformation. In this covenant, Jeremiah says, God will write his words on our hearts and we will be forgiven. And no longer will he remember our sin. The prophet Ezekiel continues with this idea in Ezekiel 36, verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel and Jeremiah explain that under the new covenant, God's word will be written on our hearts. We will have a personal relationship with God. We will no longer need an intermediary. We will no longer need a priest to talk to God. And our sins will be forgiven. God tells us that he's going to give us new hearts, that he's going to put his spirit inside of us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. He is the one who transforms us from death to life, to enemy of God, to family of God. And Zechariah tells us why God does this. In verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Because of the tender mercy of our God. All, the, all of this is simply an outpouring of God's love and mercy. Because of the tender mercy of God, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the king of kings. Because of the tender mercy of God, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the sacrificial lamb. Because of the tender mercy of our God, Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. He is the forgiver of sins. He is the great I am. He is the fulfillment of these covenants, the fulfillment of God's promises, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And Zechariah shows this to us by one more reference to the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, Malachi 4.2, there is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healings in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves from the stalls. These are some of the last words of the Old Testament right before God goes silent. For 400 years, God's not going to say anything else. And Zechariah understands what this means. He shows us in verse 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah is telling us that we are in a new dawn. We are in a new age, that the first light has come out of the darkness, that Jesus is breaking God's silence and God will never go silent again. The darkness is over. The Old Testament tells us that one day the sun will rise and darkness will end forever. And Zechariah is telling the Israelites, we are finally here. The darkness is over. Jesus is the answer. He is the Messiah. And this is good news for us because regardless of your circumstances, Jesus is the king of kings, which means you can trust him. Regardless of what's going on in your life, you know you can look to him. You know that he is all powerful, that he is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is the one. You can look to what he has done and know that he will do it again, that it is finished. Regardless of what you have done, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He has paid the price for your sins. You no longer have to worry about who you are outside of Christ because you are in Christ. 
regardless of how you see yourself, regardless of the truth that you tell yourself, regardless of what you say defines you, Jesus is the forgiver of sins. You have been forgiven. It is finished. God is not surprised or disappointed in you. There's nothing about you that he didn't know. He went to the cross. He died for it. He has forgiven you. You are clothed in righteousness. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see your past. He doesn't see your failures. He sees his son and his perfect righteousness. And this is the beautiful truth of Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is the beautiful truth of Advent, that he is the king of kings. He is the spotless lamb. He is the light in the darkness, the forgiver of sins. God answered our prayer because of his tender mercy. He sent his son to die. He did the things we could never do. He paid the price we could never pay. And we get to celebrate him in this season. We get to remember in this Advent season We get to remember the truth that John the Baptist would declare over Jesus that behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Church, your sin has been taken away. You are a new creation. You have been redefined. You are brought into the family of God. And you could do nothing to separate yourself from God if you are in Him. It's not about your performance. It's about his. Jesus is our king. He is our sacrifice. He is our righteousness. And he will always be enough. Let's pray. Hey God, thank you that you are, you are merciful. That in your tender mercy, you provided your son for us. That you are a God who keeps his promises that we can know, we can know looking forward, looking towards our future hope that you are a God who says and does the things that he says he will do. Thank you for this season. Thank you for this year that even in the midst of a global pandemic, you are God, you are loving, and you are in control. Thank you that we can put our hope in you. Like Zachariah, our hope can be restored because You are our redeemer. You are our king. You are our spotless lamb. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.